Well, if you have your Bibles, I hope that you can look with us in this text at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And as we begin today, I just want to ask this question. How would you answer this question? What is your only comfort in life and in death? What is your only comfort in life and in death? This is a penetrating question, a challenging question, a helpful question, a preeminent question in our minds and the minds of those around us. This also is the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism that was first published in 1563. Catechisms are teaching tools that help us summarize major doctrines of Scripture. Catechisms don't replace Scripture, but they help us as a succinct means to understand and summarize and teach the great doctrines of Scripture. So the Heidelberg Catechism presents this first question, and this first question and answer will hold a place of prominence as the first ones. What is your only source of hope and comfort in life and in death? That's a significant question. Here's how the catechism answers it. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood, and He has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. In short, what is your only hope and comfort in life and death? And the Catechism answers it succinctly, Christ. The scriptures iterate this truth clearly for us as we read from the hand of Paul in other places, especially as he writes to the church at Rome, the Christians at Rome, in one of the most beloved passages of all time that are comforting to every Christian of every generation. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. You know it, but let me read it. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who is raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to the slaughter. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, both this text in 2 Corinthians 1 and Romans and the Catechism point us to this one truth that I want to emphasize with us this morning. 
that your ultimate comfort is sourced in the triune God and experienced as you follow Christ. Your ultimate comfort is sourced in the triune God and experienced as you follow Christ. So here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the first few verses, I want to look at verses 3 to 7 specifically in this first point. It's amazing what Paul does for us and the church at Corinth. He leads us to praise God. He begins with this exuberant praise and rejoicing of God as the source of mercy and all comfort. Look with me at verses 3 through 7 and highlight with me these points. He says, God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. What's the connection that Paul's trying to make for us? That the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is our Father as well. He is the Father of all mercies. As revealed through the Son, Jesus Christ, we have not received what we deserve, the ultimate wrath and judgment of God against us. Why? Because on the cross, through Christ, we see the ultimate mercy of God on display for us. He is the God of all comfort. His Son, Christ Jesus, the suffering servant, the great high priest, our great high priest, He sends to us the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. Remember at the end of John, when Jesus is speaking with His disciples, and the text says that John breathes on them, and Jesus says, receive the Spirit. And He had already promised at that point that He would send them another Comforter to be with them. And so we see that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all in this text, are the divine and ultimate source of comfort for the suffering people of God at any time and in any way. Now, it's amazing because this text, as you go through the book of uh, 2 Corinthians, this letter, Paul begins to unpack his theology of suffering to a degree. But right here, we have almost like a catechism type of saying. And one author says this of this text, that here we see Paul's theology that when we endure suffering... When we endure it patiently, this begins to deepen our appreciation of God's character. And specifically in this text, we see that as we endure suffering and persevere through it, we begin to understand His limitless compassion and His never-failing comfort for us. Paul is comforted by God in his own sufferings. By the God of all comfort. You know, just recently I was reminded that sometimes when we're interacting with other people that are suffering and other people that are hurting for whatever reason, or maybe they're going something that we don't quite understand, but it's obvious they're hurting, and sometimes we just want them to cheer up or get out of it, right? Sometimes we can become very impatient, maybe even angry at them, or not very gentle with them in our interactions. Here, Paul tells us there's a God in heaven that we experience through the work of Christ who has limitless compassion and never-failing comfort for us. Paul is comforted, not just for himself, though, but he's comforted so that he might be able to comfort any and all who suffer. What a lesson for us. And that's really one of the main points of application as we go through the day. 
That as we experience the comfort of Christ, as we go through suffering, as we go through affliction of any kind, as we experience the mercy and the comfort of God in our lives, that shouldn't stop here with us. But it's for a purpose. God allows suffering in the life of His people so that we will grow deeper in understanding our faith and knowledge of His mercy and His comfort in our lives. And as we see this reality, we see all around us people who are suffering. In all kinds of ways. And as Christians, we're uniquely equipped to provide comfort to all kinds of people in all kinds of suffering. Why? Because of the suffering, or because of the comfort that we have received from God through Christ Jesus ourselves. So here's a question for you. What have you learned about God's mercy and comfort in your life? I'm sure that in this room, there's no one that would say that I've never gone through a hard time in my life. Even the kids, even the teenagers. Have you not faced some kind of difficulty, some kind of challenge, some kind of affliction, some kind of opposition, some kind of hurt? How and when have you learned about God's mercy and comfort? And are you taking these things that you're learning and processing them in such a way that when you encounter others who are suffering or hurting in some way that you can speak to them and comfort them with the very comfort that you have received from God Himself. Sometimes we just want to get through the suffering. We just want to blow through it. We want to get out of it. Whatever trial, whatever circumstance, whatever difficulty, we just want to be done with it. But here we see that God wants us to experience Him and experience the depth of his love, his mercy, his comfort during the midst of those times. I began to learn this lesson, and I still am learning it. I'm still learning it in college. When a friend of mine, I think I was a junior in college, we were in a dorm hallway, and my friend was telling me about something really good that was happening in his life. I think it was a summer internship or maybe a job or I don't know, he got accepted to a program. I don't really remember what it was, and that kind of tells you where my mind was. I wasn't really listening to what he was saying. And he could tell that, and as soon as he was done, I started to change the subject and to move on to something else. And he stopped me and very graciously yet firmly said, Hey, Matt, you need to learn how to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. Man, those words stuck with me. That brief 30-second conversation with my friend in college stuck with me. To this point, to this day, especially as an Air Force chaplain, I think of these words often now. When I'm walking around and I'm meeting people, one of the questions that goes through my mind as I walk into an encounter is, is this person rejoicing or are they weeping? And how do I enter into that with them? How do I identify with them in that? They may or may not be Christians. That's okay. And if they are Christians, how much more? To rejoice with them in their rejoicing and to weep with them in their weeping. How then can I respond? How can I enter into that? How can I comfort them with the comfort that I've received with Christ, from Christ, even as I enter into their weeping with them? See, and when we do that, then we realize that that this isn't coming from us, right? Because when we try to comfort others or point them to comfort, we can do that through relationships. We can do that through God's 
good common grace, natural provisions like going out for a run or going for a hike in these beautiful mountains or going for a ski or driving your car on the road, riding your bike. These are all common grace, things that God gives to us to help us remember his goodness and his grace and his kindness all around us. But when we try to comfort somebody, we must realize that we're not comforting out of our own strength, out of our own ability. We're comforting them or we're coming to give them the comfort that we have received from God himself. It's not innate to us. It's not natural to us. But it's a divine work through us. And so the author, that's another commentator, says this, the experience of God's comfort in our suffering qualifies us and equips us and obliges us to comfort others who are undergoing any type of suffering in their lives. He is the Father of mercy and the God of all comfort. You may be suffering this warning in some way. I don't know. The call to you this warning is to look to Him. Look to Christ. The comfort that Paul gives is the same comfort that he receives from God. Sometimes... Um, as a chaplain, one of the unique things is that I have 100% confidentiality with other military members who come to talk to me. It's called privileged communication. So they can come and they can talk to me as a chaplain, and it's their privilege to talk to me about anything that they want. And I am not allowed to speak about that outside of that context. I can't talk to their commanders. I can't talk to my wife. I can't talk to other chaplains unless it's seeking some kind of advice or counsel how to handle a situation. I'm not allowed. It's their privilege. So they can tell me anything they want. If they're going to hurt somebody, if they committed a crime, if they're struggling with something, if they're mad or angry, they can come and talk to me about absolutely anything. And other people in the Air Force understand this, and they know this. So many times they'll come and they'll ask me as a chaplain, I say, Chaplain, who do you go to to talk to? You hear all of this. You carry all these burdens for others. Where do you go? At first, I would say things like, you know, it's great. I have a great relationship with some pastors back home. I give them a call. I don't share any specifics, but I'm able to bear the burdens and pray for me. I have a good pastor friend there in Louisiana. I have my wife, who's an awesome counselor and friend, and helps me walk through some of these things and bear those burdens with me. But I began to realize that those, though were good answers, were not sufficient. I'm still learning to say this. And so now, I try to say things like this. I talk to you, and I unload my burdens on the God of all comfort. We can go to him. My wife, yes. My pastors, yes. But ultimately, I look to and I talk to the God of all comfort. And they just look at you, and they don't know what to do with that. I talk to the God of all grace. I unload those burdens on the God of all comfort. Because he can bear them in a way that nobody else can. As we see in the person and work of Christ Jesus on the cross and the resurrection. See, we don't provide comfort and mercy and patience out of our own innate strength or ability, but we are conduits of God's comfort and mercy and grace and patience that we have received. So Paul says, just as he received, so also he gives. In the same manner, 
So as Christ treats Paul and comforts Paul, so also Paul seeks to treat and comforts others. In the means, as Paul received comfort and hope and mercy through the means of the work of Christ in the cross and resurrection, so also when we uh, try to provide comfort and mercy and care to others, we do it through the means that Christ has showed us through the cross and the resurrection where there's infinite hope and infinite comfort and infinite mercy. It's amazing. And that's why Paul says, as our affliction and suffering abounds, so also our comfort abounds. It overflows, so also the comfort in Christ overflows. Friends, there's no depth of suffering, no depth of affliction where the comfort of Christ will not overflow and overwhelm you in that situation. Again, not for you to hold on to it, because if it's overflowing, you can't. But it overflows into others' lives as you encounter them and as you engage with brothers and sisters in Christ and unbelievers so that they ask the questions like, how do you have hope? How are you responding in such a way? How are you keeping this perspective and joy Matthew Henry, that old commentator, I encourage you, you haven't read him for a while. He does a great job summarizing this section. He says this, It is our Savior who says, Let not your heart be troubled. All comforts come from God. And our sweetest comforts are in Him. He speaks peace to souls by granting the free remission of sins. And he comforts them by, en- by the enlivening influences of the Holy Spirit and by the rich mercies of his grace. He is able to bind up the brokenhearted, to heal the most painful wounds, and also to give hope and joy under the heaviest sorrows. These favors God bestows on us are not only to make us cheerful, but also that we may be useful to others. What a great encouragement. Friends, your ultimate comfort is sourced in the triune God. And you experience that as you follow Christ with your life. Then these last few verses, verses 8 through 11, after Paul leads us to praise the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort, in verses 8 through 11, Paul explains to us the ultimate hope and the purpose for a Christian suffering. As I've alluded to already, Paul said that he is overwhelmed with the amount of suffering he faced in verse 8 and 9. He says in verse 8, it was beyond any human physical strength or mental endurance. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Some of you have been there. You've been so burdened beyond any human physical strength or mental endurance that you could say with Paul, I've said this in my soul before. We despaired of life itself. But it was the suffering that brought Paul to the point of sure sense of impending death, but also, ultimately, that drove him and drives us to trust in God alone. Because what does he say, verse 9? Indeed, indeed, we felt that we have received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, 
Who does what? Who raises the dead? Who raises the dead? So if our God is powerful enough to raise the dead, then is he not powerful enough to be trusted through the suffering, through the affliction, through the difficulty? The commentator that I've referred to several times so far summarizes this point this way. Suffering drives us to trust God alone. It was suffering that stripped Paul of any self-reliance or dependence on himself. And instead, it moved his focus to God himself in a deeper way than he had known before. I don't like affliction. I don't like difficulty any more than you do. But God allows it to come into our lives. Why? Because we so easily look to ourselves and look to our own resources, our own strength, and we have misplaced faith in ourselves, and God wants to reorient our faith back to him and his provision. God alone is the ultimate source of mercy and comfort. He is the focus, for he alone is able to raise the dead. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians, as we begin to identify with Christ in suffering. He says, By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also as we identify with him in faith and repentance. So Paul says to them, At Corinth, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Do you not know that when you have been united with Christ himself, this is the hope we have? And the implication of that in 1 Corinthians is that they should live holy lives, pure lives, and not give their bodies to improper use. But realize that by his power, he's going to raise us from the dead. Romans 8, again, Paul writes to the church of Rome, he says, but if Christ is in you then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, if that's true, then He who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. And again, the implication in Romans 8, the application that Paul makes is live by the Spirit. Live according to the Spirit. Live by the comfort of the Spirit. Live by the hope that's found in the Spirit, not by the flesh, not by our mere thinking or words and actions that focus on us, but live live by the Spirit. An alternate way of living in this world around us that is consumed with death and dying and no hope and loss. And in the midst of that, through the power of the Spirit, because we know that through life in the Spirit we'll be resurrected, we have hope and joy in all things. This is Paul. This is the message of Paul. This is the message of the gospel. This is the message to us. And Paul says in verse 10, all I have to do is look back. Christ delivered me in the past. He delivered us from such a deadly peril. Therefore, that helps me in the future to believe and understand that he will deliver us in the future. Christ rose from the dead in the past. Christ is able to deliver in the future. And he will finally and ultimately do so in the resurrection. Friends, there's there's no hope apart from Christ. But there's ultimate and sufficient and overflowing hope and comfort in and with Christ. Which also reminds us here that suffering is not forever. 
And Paul realizes that. We have set our hope that he will deliver us again. I can't help but think as Paul is writing this, that in his mind, in his mind, he's rehearsing stories like Abraham. Do you remember Abraham? Here's what Hebrews 11 says about Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. And he who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. And Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. I think Paul was remembering Abraham. I think Paul might have been remembering Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God who, is, who we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your mighty hand. But even if he does not, even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Man, what awesome confidence in the hope and the deliverance of the God who raises the dead. What about Peter? Peter, remembering and speaking of Jesus himself, Remember these words, Peter writes this about Jesus, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. In his suffering, he committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. This is the power of the comfort that comes only from God through Christ. So Paul calls the church to pray for him and enter into this joy of experiencing the deliverance and hope this is an amazing thing. He, in verse 11, he says, You also must help us by prayer. You also must help us as we find our comfort, find our hope, find our joy in Christ. Help us by praying for us so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So he's saying this, like when you pray for us and then we're delivered or we experience the comfort and the mercy of Christ through this, people are going to see that and we're going to be able to say, Yeah, that church at Corinth, they are praying for us. And we praise God because they were praying for us because we needed their help to pray for us so that we could have this focus and that we could understand how God is delivering us and be encouraged to persevere and hope even in the midst of darkness, even in the midst of difficulty. And I didn't take time to read all that Paul talks about, but you can go look it up in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and other places in the book where he lists out all the things that they're enduring, everything that they're going through, a lot of it is related directly to his ministry of the gospel, but some of it is just peripheral things that happen in the course of life. And he's basically saying, trouble, trouble everywhere. And as we walk through this life, we will have trouble, but as we walk through it, the God of all mercy and all comfort walks with us. 
So pray for us. Pray for one another. When there's those in our midst who are suffering and facing times of difficulty, pray for them. Pray for them that they would have the mindset of Paul and other believers that their hope would be fixed on Christ, that they would overflow with the comfort that comes only from Christ. And that might overflow in their lives to their families, to their friends, to everyone they encounter. And it would be obvious that there's a divine work of comfort and mercy taking place in their lives through the power of Christ. Some of you might have seen recently, I didn't see it, but I was made aware of it um, because of an article, a blog on the Gospel Coalition about a young lady named Jane who goes by the stage name Nightbird. And on um, the America's Got Talent show here recently, she appeared and to sing a song, an original song. And um, a young lady named... Or, uh, I'm not sure, but her name is Kelly Simpson, wrote this article on the Gospel Coalition blog. And I just want to read some of this to you because uh, it captivated me. It's powerful, and I think it captivated our nation, and it's interesting. This could be a bridge for us, for the Gospel. The name Jane Markzewski, I think, may not ring a bell, but her stage name, Nightbird, has become famous overnight. The 30-year-old from Zanesville, Ohio, appeared on the 16th season of America's Got Talent in June, performing her original song, It's Okay. The seemingly impossible to impress Simon Cowell, with tears in his eyes, hit the coveted golden buzzer, leaping her forward to the live episodes of the show. Two days later, It's Okay was the top song on iTunes. The irony, though, is Nightbird's life seems anything but okay. In 2017, Nightbird first received the diagnosis we all dread, cancer. She learned she likely had six months to live as she began her battle with stage 3 breast cancer. In 2018, she was declared cancer-free, but her celebration was short-lived. Just a few months later, she began a second battle with cancer, facing single-digit chances of survival. If fate didn't already seem to be against her, the battle became all the more lonely when her husband of five years left her. She went on alone, winning the second battle in July 2020. On June 8th, Nightbird auditioned for America's Got Talent, captivating the audience and judges. And after the song, she revealed her cancer was back and now in her liver, spine, and lungs. And host Terry Crews simply said to her, You are the voice we all need to hear this year. Why is this unlikely voice the one we need to hear right now? In her words, Nightbird gives the answer. I'm so much more than the bad things that happened to me. What is her hope despite her circumstances? How can she declare it's okay when it clearly isn't okay? America is captivated because of hope and joy are not natural responses when life falls apart. So where does Nightbird's hope originate? It originates from a mysterious place that an NBC talent show is unlikely to explore. God. In an interview, Nightbird said, I believe that God can heal in one instant. 
I also believe that no good thing does he withhold. So there was something God was growing in the field that is me. And if God had pulled up all of this hardship too soon, it would have also pulled up all of these miracles he did in my spirit. Nightbird wrote in a May 3rd blog post, Maybe we missed it. What God showed us when he first introduced himself, that he will crawl into the dirt to be near us. He will fill our lungs with air when we don't know how to breathe. Even her stage name communicates hope. She chose it because she dreamed about birds singing in darkness for three straight nights. She says, I want to be that way. Even when I am in the middle of a dark time and there are no signs that it will end, she said, I want to be the bird that sings in anticipation of the good things that I trust are coming. Nightbird does not sugarcoat her suffering. In one blog post that she titled, God is on the bathroom floor, she poetically details how she was, has wrestled with God through this trial. I remind myself that I'm praying to the God who let the Israelites stay lost for decades. They begged to arrive in the promised land, but instead he left them to wander. He answered prayers they didn't even pray. For 40 years, their shoes didn't wear out. Fire lit their path each night. Every morning he sent them mercy bread from heaven. So I look hard for the answers to the prayers that I didn't pray. In another post she wrote, When it comes to pain, God isn't, isn't often in the business of taking it away. Instead, he adds to it. He is more of a giver than a taker. He doesn't take away my darkness. He adds light. He doesn't spare me from thirst. He brings water. He doesn't cure my loneliness. He comes near. So why do we believe that when we are in pain, it must mean that God is far? In her pain, Nightbird has hope. Why? Because that's where God is nearest. We can identify with her story. But for us, here's the connection. Is there a more humble place for God to draw near to us than the bathroom floor? Yes. On the cross. The author goes on and writes this. God the Son took on flesh and entered into this sin-ravaged, cancer-stricken world to deliver us from it. Jesus went willingly to the cross and experienced the suffering our sin deserves in order to give us all that he merited with his perfect life. We might call the cross humanity's bathroom floor, and that's where God met us. That is the hope that Nightbird communicates to the world. It's a hope that the world, though captivated, is unable to attain by itself. It's the hope of the gospel that allows us not just to endure, but to rejoice in the midst of suffering. Right now, America is fascinated with Nightbird, not simply because of her story is compelling, but because she seems to possess something elusive that we all want, or rather, someone. The God who knows our pain, meets us in our pain, and redeems our pain. With this God, we too can have a hope that allows us to sing, along with Nightbird, the unlikeliest of, of refrains in a world of sickness and death. It's okay. It's okay. In conclusion, and I will ask the worship team to come up as, as they desire and want to at this point, if I could adapt and improve upon what Terry Crews said to her, when he said, you are the voice we all need to hear this year, 
I would simply say this. You, we, are the voice that your neighbors and coworkers and family members and friends need to hear this year. Both the individual and corporate voices of the church singing out and saying, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. The suffering world around us needs to hear and see us praise and worship God in and through our suffering and affliction, even as we are comforted by God, by Christ Himself. And as the suffering world around us sees it, we, out of the abundance, the overflowingness of the comfort and mercy that we receive from God, this becomes an opportunity for us to share with any and all who are suffering and afflicted around us the comfort and the mercy that we have received from God Himself. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. Let us pray.